0: Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Welcome back once
1: again to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we chat with today's most successful and inspiring health leaders. I wanna thank you again for tuning in and I welcome you to go to outcomesrocket.health reviews where you can rate and review today's podcast because he is a friend and an outstanding contributor to health. His name is Michael Millinson. He's the president of Health Quality Advisors. He's an adjunct professor, associate professor of medicine at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, the contributing editor at the UHG healthcare blog, a board member of the American Medical Group Foundation and he's done so many things in his career to be a contributor in healthcare, a specialty in policy. And so I'm just so privileged to have him on the podcast today. Michael, I want to welcome you and then also open up the mic for you to fill in any of the gaps in that intro. So happy to have you.
0: Well, I'm delighted to be here, Saul, and uh, of course, happy uh, with the entire focus of this podcast on thought leadership. Just by way of background, I began as a reporter uh, covering healthcare for the Chicago Tribune and after a while got to know too much about the difference between what happens in meeting rooms where they talk to journalists and have big meetings, And uh, in the front lines of care and decided to go out and spend my time uh, uh, more towards the front lines, I wrote a book called Demanding Medical Excellence, Doctors and Accountability in the Information Age back in 1997, talking about evidence-based medicine, informatics in great detail, patient safety quality and outcomes improvement, patient-centered care, and changing how we purchase care, and really became uh, activated and uh, now make a living as a consultant. I work with startups to uh, major uh, corporations. In the policy world, I do a lot of white papers and am involved in a lot of policy discussions, uh, do some original research, and try to act as a patient advocate as well. All of that is connected by trying to make the care delivery system better. So while some folks focus on insurance, whether we're going to have single payer or uh, some other God knows what variation, I focus on what happens once you get into the care system, how can you get better care?
1: That's really interesting, Michael. And listeners, if you haven't taken a read of Michael's book, Demanding Medical Excellence, the listenership of this podcast fits the bill for who needs to read it. Any stakeholder in healthcare, really, uh, whether you be a provider, a patient, industry, executive, this book is for you because Michael really takes a deep dive into just questioning some of the processes the system, that the system currently uses. And so, Michael, I definitely took a read and, and I recommend it to all the listeners. What do you think today, out of all the things hot in, in medicine, is a hot topic that should be on every medical leader's agenda today?
0: I think to me, one of the most uh, pressing needs that's coming to fruition is how we're changing the relationship between the care system and patients or individuals because of changes in economics, uh, the way people are paid, because of changes in technology, and really sort of social changes. And I've tried to put this into a conceptual framework that I call collaborative health. And that is not collaborative care, which is when healthcare workers all sort of collaborate together from different specialties. It's not patient-centeredness, which is what happens when you have control of the patient. It's what happens when for your well-being and for sickness care, the individual has the choice who they collaborate with. And let me elaborate that on a moment, for a moment. Please. That it used to be that the care system controlled everything. And now this is kind of like medicine's Martin Luther moment when the priesthood had to open up the secrets to the masses. And what we have now is you can go online and find diagnostic information, treatment information, a lot of other information that's just as personalized and accurate often, not always, of course, as your physician. At the same time, non clinical folks in public health and a lot of other areas are trying to reach out in the social determinants of health. And so, what you have is this entire continuum from well being to really being sick, where all sorts of folks who never were part of the healthcare system before are now part of that system, and where the individual has far more information and good information independently of their doctor than they ever did before. And that's going to require a lot of adjustment to relationships. And relationships are really difficult. It's not just the matter of turning on your iPhone. It's a matter of who's responsible for what, how do we relate differently, how do we restructure the care delivery system to take into account all these changes.
1: That's really, really interesting and very thought-provoking. You were about to say something else. I don't want to interrupt. Go ahead.
0: It's a mouthful. And and the thing is that I'm really against simplistic answers. So I don't believe that the patients are going to be the CEO of their care all the time. And I don't believe that on the other end, that uh, the care system is going to be completely different and so patient-centered, there's a continuum. And so sometimes you're the CEO of your care, and sometimes you're really sick and you just need empathy and caring and somebody to take care of you. No matter how much knowledge you have, no matter how much expertise you have, you're vulnerable, you're sick, you're in the kingdom of the sick. But what we're having is a continuum that changes. And and I'll, I'll give you an example. You could today... Walk into a brick and mortar doctor's office that's run by Google's parent, Alphabet, and it's called CityBlock. You may be able in a few months to then open up your medical record on your Apple phone, your medical record from your traditional care provider you'll get some sort of referral and maybe you'll look get your diagnosis from an AI application called Isabel which has a web-based application for patients as well as a diagnostic application for doctors you can then perhaps be monitored at home with some sensors in your apartment that are placed there by a division of Best Buy a retailer and maybe if you need food, it can be delivered by your health plan, Humana. That is a continuum of care of non-traditional actors that is unprecedented, simply unprecedented. It's being tied together by technology. It's being tied together by payment changes. And it's being tied together by cultural changes that really are the greatest we've seen in healthcare since Hippocrates made his first house call.
1: <laughs> I love it, Michael. And, uh, you know, ever since the first time we met, you never fail to put things in a very candid perspective that forces the listener or the reader to, or, or people that you interact with to to kind of think. And so you take us through this continuum of care that includes Google and Isabel and Best Buy and Humana. And you also mention that at the same time, you also know that these changes are not going to happen overnight. And so... What do you think organizations and health leaders need to be focused on in order to ensure that, number one, they don't get disrupted, and number two, that they leverage these new concepts and new technologies and ways of working?
0: So when I talk to healthcare leaders, I find that it's very difficult for them to envision a situation where they're not in control. They can get up to the part where maybe they're partnering as equals, but what they can't get kind of their mind wrapped around sometimes is that the individual can have healthcare and wellness relationships that are very significant, but that don't include the traditional care system. So what I tell them is that to think that the old saying, nothing about me without me, Mm -hmm. which was a way of the healthcare system telling patients, we understand we're going to be patient-centered. They should think of it as the patient saying to them, nothing about me without me, but sometimes without you. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I love it.
0: That's the key. This is not about you. This is about a broader change. And one of the examples I give in an article I wrote for the BMJ uh, this past summer uh, on collaborative care, which was actually an editor's choice, I was really uh, quite thrilled by that. Oh, nice. Was the example of policing? Right. You have community policing where they're reaching out, at the equivalent of hot spotting. They're going to the community. They're trying to do prevention. If something happens, they're using digital technology to figure out where to send the police and all the rest of this. And that doesn't mean that the cop on the beat, the guys in the car in the neighborhood are not really important when bad things happen. What it does mean is sometimes policing happens without you and you're being disintermediated somewhere in the continuum some of the time. And that's what's happening in healthcare. Not that if you're really sick and you're in the hospital for cancer or a heart procedure, you don't need the traditional care system to be patient-centered, but there's a continuum and there's a change in the relationship. Yeah, I think that's a good call. The advice that I would give, the reason I brought up that example of nothing about me without me, but sometimes without you, is it's a way for healthcare leaders to think about what a changed relationship means mm-hmm. to think about how are they going to relate to other actors what is their relationship going to be with a best buy or with a city block or with other retailers or other entrepreneurs coming in and also to think how they're going to have a relationship with the patient when that individual is not a patient, when that individual has their medical record independently of you and portable, how are you going to have a new relationship? And one of the other kind of sayings that I heard once in relationship to accountable care organizations, which I liked a lot, you know, Medicare ACOs, unlike a, a Medicare Advantage under like an HMO, they can't have a financial penalty if you don't use their network, right? So you have to be attractive to the patient. And the saying is, greener pastures, not higher fences. And and I like that a lot. And so if you're a leader preparing for a future that's coming relatively quickly, where at least part of the time, you're not as central to your patients as you used to be. And yet, due to payment changes, you need to be part of an ongoing relationship. How are you going to have greener pastures when higher fences don't work anymore. And that's what I really have been talking to a lot of folks about how do you make that happen in the front lines of care as opposed to simply you know, as a conceptual matter.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a really great perspective, Michael. And with um, MACRA and MIPS sort of being part of the legislation, I think it's a reality that volume to values here to stay
0: when you look at macro, one of the things that's interesting about it is here's a bipartisan piece of legislation, overwhelmingly bipartisan, in the legislative language, not simply in the regulations. And the legislative language has certain patient-centered requirements for things like shared decision-making, care coordination, things like that. So that tells you that these kinds of concepts have very strong policy support. At the same time, when you go to digital health, because that involves entrepreneurs and a lot of uh, startup capital, a lot of activity of profit-making entities, that too has a lot of congressional policy support. And finally, when you get to social determinants of health, because we as a nation are not investing a lot in the public health infrastructure, the private sector is clearly going to pick up more of that load. So whether you're looking at Medicare policy, whether you're looking at broader policy trends, or whether you're looking at what's happening culturally, this kind of new collaborators, new ecosystem of care is starting to happen. It's just not totally visible yet, but you can see the pieces moving into place.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. And so you've been in health for quite some time, Michael. And from when you started as a reporter in health to now, a couple decades, what would you say some of the mistakes that you've seen happen that health leaders could learn from and not repeat today?
0: Well, Bill Gates famously said in one of his books that we tend to overestimate the speed of change in the short term. And underestimate it in the long term. Mm -hmm. And goodness knows that is absolutely true in healthcare. And I think the biggest challenge in healthcare for healthcare leaders often is distinguishing between fast moving traffic and slow moving icebergs. And you can get run over by both, but as a manager, you need to know which is coming more quickly. That's so great. And so I, I think that there's adaptability is incredibly important without getting caught up in jargon that simply isn't true so if in fact you got caught up in the jargon you would have thought that all employers were buying based on quality and outcomes 20 years ago or 15 years ago or whatever right i mean everybody mm-hmm. talked about it but it was just a few people doing it and it really hadn't caught on at the same time if you ignore the iceberg you can look and say look fee for service is still overwhelmingly what's here I don't have to worry about value based care. And that would be to ignore what's happening to the federal budget and private corporation budgets for healthcare and understand that there's this consensus about how we're going to change the payment system that crosses ideological lines, that crosses government and private sector lines, that's simply so deep that you better take it into account or you're going to get run over. So I think that's the real challenge is understanding when to adapt quickly and when perhaps adaptability can take a little longer.
1: Yeah, that's pretty interesting. What would you say up to this point, Michael, in in your observation of the health system, as well as your experiences as a consultant and a writer? what would you say one of the proudest medical leadership moments that you've experienced to date is?
0: I would say in, in sort of... Uh, two different capacities. As a writer and author, I've had individuals, physicians and others come up to me at meetings uh, where I just happened to be a speaker and tell me that reading Demanding Medical Excellence changed what they did with their career, changed what they did with their life, made them more cognizant and active about improving quality and improving patient safety and really making that part of their life's uh, mission. And that's both extraordinarily gratifying and extraordinarily uh, humbling. As a consultant, I worked with some physician colleagues where we put together an accountability audit for a hospital. This is perhaps 10 years ago now before information systems were sophisticated. But we showed this hospital what their quality looked like to outsiders if you really looked and what they were saying about it to themselves and the difference. And the medical staff of that hospital, the medical executive committee of about 10 people or so, looked at us and virtually without dissent said, we didn't know, what can we do to make this better? We're not trained in quality improvement. That's not what they train you about in in medical school. We believe this, help us make it better. And to have the opportunity in a real situation to help a major hospital improve its care. It was, it was again, very gratifying and, and humbling.
1: Yeah, Michael, there's no doubt you're making waves out there with your thought leadership. And, you know, even on the podcast, for instance, we always ask our guests for a book they recommend and your book come up a couple times, and so no doubt you're making an impact, and it's definitely something to be proud of, and just super thankful that you made it on the outcomes rocket because we are very focused on removing silos to improve health outcomes, and so the alignment could be better.
0: That's really important. The, the, the removing the silos, and you know, when I wrote "Demanding Medical Excellence," what shocked me was the degree to which. Evidence doesn't change behavior, to which there are silos, to which there is inertia in health care. And really, almost everyone in healthcare gets into healthcare to help people. People do not say, What shall I be? A hospital administrator or an investment bank. That's not the choice, right? <laughs> and they're not getting in there to make as much money as possible. You know, should I be a nurse or a hedge fund manager, right? That's not the choices people are making. They really care. And yet for a variety of reasons, There's enormous inertia. And when I wrote Demanding Medical Excellence, I vastly overestimated how quickly change was coming because things were so obvious. It was so obvious that computerized clinical decision support could make care better, and yet it is just now happening. It was obvious that we needed to change how we bought care because fee-for-service was not working, and yet it's just happening. It was obvious that we needed to pay more attention to the patient's preferences and values, and yet it's just happening. And so the inertia in healthcare is often overwhelming and really needs an earthquake often to change. And that earthquake is changing to value-based payment. And that earthquake is health information technology that is so pervasive that it can't be ignored, right? Because it's coming from the outside now. This isn't Cerner offering to give you your medical records. And then Epic says, no, we're gonna do ours. This is Apple doing it. Uh This isn't a pharmaceutical company offering to give you more information on cancer care. It's IBM Watson making an alliance with the American Cancer Society, right? So it's forces from outside healthcare that are permeating healthcare and causing it to change. That has a good side and a dangerous side, but it is certainly a force for change that will not be resisted and cannot be resisted.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. You know, just thinking through that analogy that you gave us, Michael, the slow moving glacier is no doubt underestimated. And we're starting to see a lot of those changes happening now. Tell us a little bit about an exciting project or focus that you're working on as it relates to that.
0: I'm trying to really go out and do a lot more writing and speaking and perhaps looking at projects in the field, the front lines that represent collaborative health. I was speaking to a pediatric hospital executive the other day about some of the things that they're doing where they're really letting patients not only uh, be in charge of their care, when they can and giving them information, they're even letting patients run clinical trials that the parents of pediatric patients. And so I think that to me, what's exciting is to show that change is happening in real life, not just in theory, to look at the pieces and try to put them together in a way that helps people see that a real paradigm shift is possible. And we all tend to think in, in easy categories, right? It's all about technology. Or it's all about social determinants. But it's all about a lot of different things that come together at different times. And one of the things that needs to be cherished is the fact that we as people have different needs at different times. And a collaborative relationship will be flexible. I call it the yes-dear principle. Sometimes you make a decision collaboratively with all the factors being weighed in great detail, and you have discussions and and great kind of debate over what to do. And sometimes you just say, yes, dear. (laughs) And it doesn't mean you don't have a collaborative relationship. It means sometimes One person makes the decision. Sometimes the other person makes the decision. Sometimes you make it together. Sometimes you bring in someone from outside who knows more than either of you. And so that's real life. And that kind of real life is what's coming to the healthcare system in a lot greater volume and uh, depth than before. And it's a little difficult when you're used to controlling all information for somebody to say, well, you know what? I've got this piece of information that came from the remote sensors in my uh, mother's living room, and those came from a retailer. And I've got this data that comes from online, and I've got, you don't know what's reliable and what's not, and you've got to work with that but that's the world we're coming to. And I want to say that one of the things I've talked about for adapting to this world, I think this is really important, is the principles of shared information, shared engagement, and shared accountability. And I I cannot overemphasize how important trust is going to be in this new world, right? Because you Mm -hmm. have all these different players, what are their obligations? Who do you trust? And if the traditional care system or anyone for that matter, the new players as well, wants to be trusted. I think they need to share information openly. That means open notes, but it also means sharing with other people I want you to share it with, whether it's my Patients Like Me group or whether it's a retailer or an entrepreneur. It means shared engagement that if I want you to look at my online uh, community, you need to do that. But at the same time, you need to engage with me in a much different way, not simply to manipulate me into compliance, but to truly engage with me and shared accountability, which can be really difficult. Who's responsible for privacy and security and communication gaps and all the rest, right? Because if I'm in a paternalistic system, then daddy is responsible, the traditional care system, I'm the patient, derived from the word to suffer. You're the doctor, derived from the Latin term to teach. You teach, I suffer. We all know our, our jobs, right? When you have all sorts of different people, what then? IBM Watson is not a doctor, what's their obligation? Medtronic is working on devices that interact directly with consumers, what's their obligation? When Alphabet uh, sets up a doctor's office but has all sorts of other kinds of things and non-traditional, what's their obligation? What about privacy? What about a lot of other things? And you know, when everything's going right and you have happy stories of empowerment, that's great but this is healthcare things go wrong people get hurt sometimes seriously it may not be anybody's quote unquote fault but somebody's going to get blamed and how do we deal with that how do we set up new systems and i think if we if we work on trust if we work on openness and in information, openness and in engagement, and openness and accountability about responsibilities, we at least lay the foundation for lasting change that does not get caught up in backlash, in legal actions, and in all sorts of other complications that can really hurt the ability of the healthcare system to improve care for everyone.
1: It's a really interesting focus, Michael, and you're definitely at the forefront of thinking through some of these things. So, listeners, If you have any thoughts, questions, or just want to bounce ideas off of Michael, I know he's very collaborative. And uh, at the end of the podcast, we'll be including his contact information at the very least, the LinkedIn profile where you could reach out to him because uh, definitely an individual worth checking in with and chatting with. So Michael, let's pretend you and I are building a medical leadership course on what it takes to be successful in medicine. It's the one hundred and one. Or the ABCs of Michael Millenson. So I got a, a quick syllabus that we're gonna do with four lightning round questions, followed by a book and a podcast that you recommend to the listeners. You ready? I'm ready. All right. What is the best way to improve health outcomes through policy?
0: We need to pay people in a way that takes into account measurable quality indicators particularly on patient safety, but also in other dimensions. And we need to have the pay to be significant enough to get folks' attention. At the same time, we can't focus too much on the individual doctor. We just need to be in a way that is uh, collaborative and lets people improve systems of care. That is really difficult to do because when it comes to politics, everybody wants to be a winner. Nobody wants to be a loser. If I'm losing money, then the system must be broken because I know that I'm above average. So that's what makes it difficult.
1: It's a great one. What's the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid?
0: Underestimating the difficulty of cultural change. The people who will fight to prevent change are not evil. They honestly believe in the status quo. And you cannot underestimate the power of inertia, particularly when somebody's pocketbook is at stake. When I wrote Demanding Medical Excellence, I was chastened by how many changes I had thought would have happened and hadn't happened, that I'd written about when I was a journalist and 10 years later, they hadn't happened. And then I do the history and 20 years ago, people had said they were going to happen and 30 years ago, people said they would happen. And I came up with a way to categorize the influence of economic factors, grab them by their wallets and their hearts and minds will follow. (laughs) 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 <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well said my friend well right, said
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> i love it i'm glad you went back to that one it's a good way to summarize it so obviously uh relevance is is by you create change by being able to create incentives how do you stay relevant despite constant change uh, so
0: i think the way to stay relevant is to be widely read both in healthcare and elsewhere we tend to be very focused on our own silo. We don't see how something that's happening in the FDA, uh, maybe like what's happening in CMS and the VA, and in policing, in the army, in uh, sports, all those different areas are often subject to the same cultural forces that are subject to healthcare. In fact, my book was used uh, in policing for evidence-based policing. And so I think- that Oh, really,
1: that's pretty cool.
0: It, it was pretty cool. The way you stay relevant is by staying intellectually curious and open to other trends that are not perhaps in your comfort zone.
1: A great call-out. And what's one area of focus that should drive everything in your health work?
0: Make care better and safer. Make care measurably better and safer. Nobody is letting harm happen to patients on purpose. And nobody is providing care that is not the best possible care on purpose. And yet, when there is ample medical literature on how to make care safer, and we don't get around to doing it because there are other priorities, when there is ample medical literature on individual procedures in cancer and heart care and a lot of other places that shouldn't be done or should be done differently, we don't follow it, that hurts people. And the most important thing we can do is help people in the best way we can. And to stay humble about the fact that trying hard and caring deeply isn't enough, you have to use information effectively. Michael,
1: what book and what podcast would you recommend to the listeners? Obviously, besides Demanding Medical Excellence, (laughs) because that's a good one.
0: One of the books that most influenced me was recommended to me by Jack Winberg of Dartmouth, who was one of the pioneers in practice variation. And it's called The Silent World of Doctor and Patient, by Jay Katz and Dr. Katz is a psychiatrist who is a refugee from Nazi Germany, who was actually active as an ethicist in overseeing uh, what happened with some of the Tuskegee trials and, and things like that. Who wrote this hmm. book about the doctor-patient relationship in the 1980s, which is absolutely wonderful and conceptually will challenge you and will cause you to look. At the doctor-patient relationship in new ways, and you'll go back to it again and again. What
1: a great recommendation. And how about a podcast, Michael? What would you recommend to the listeners?
0: I listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is a way to stay up on current events and laugh while doing it. One of the things that never ceases to amaze me is even though I'm a news junkie and I you know, look at all the different newspapers and news feeds and everything, inevitably, if I'm listening to a podcast like Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me or watching The Late Show with Stephen Colbert or watching uh, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, inevitably I find out about something I didn't know happened. And so what better way to stay up on the news than to laugh while doing
1: it? I love it. You got to stay lighthearted while you're in your pursuits to drive excellence. Michael, I really appreciate that. Listeners, if you're driving or going for your jog, just don't worry about jotting this down. Just go to outcomesrocket.health/slash millinson that's m-i-l-l-e-n-s-o-n as in michael millinson and you're going to be able to find all the show notes as well as the books and projects that michael's working on there at your fingertips michael before we conclude i'd love if you could just share a closing thought and then the best place where the listeners could get in touch with you or follow you
0: well i'm on twitter at at M-L Millinson, M-I-L-L-E-N-S-O-N. And uh, I'm, of course, on on LinkedIn. And my email address is on my site, www.millinson.com or healthqualityadvisors.com. And I think that this is one of the best times to be in healthcare ever. Other than the invention of antibiotics, which, of course, is a medical breakthrough, and in healthcare delivery, the advent of health insurance after World War II, this is the most transformative time ever in healthcare. And it's a transformation that is making care better, safer, more patient-centered, more inclusive. So I think that all of your listeners who are in healthcare should cherish this as an opportunity, as a career opportunity, as a personal opportunity to really make a positive difference.
1: Michael, I love it. What a great closing thought. And, and listeners, take that as an action item for yourself. We are in one of the greatest eras in health. And take Michael's encouragement and my own to take advantage of it and make it even better with your contributions. And so, Michael, just a, a big thank you from me and, and from all of our listeners for carving out some time in your busy schedule. Really appreciate you being on the podcast.
0: My pleasure. Thank you, Saul.